Hey, what's up? On today's show, I have my good friend and radio host, Ken Coleman, talking about work that matters, talking about parenting, being dads, how we don't know what we're doing, what we still carry from our own fathers, and so much more. Stay tuned. I'm glad to have you, man. Hey, I'm glad to hang out with you, man. I always enjoy hanging out with you. You're my, you're my desk mate. We sit three to four feet away from each other. That's kind of fun. And- I know. And this is cool. What most people don't know is we record the John Deloney show in the Ken Coleman studio. That's so, not true. It's Studio B. It's Studio B. But it's been Ken Coleman studio for like several years now. Nah, it's been Dave Ramsey's massive <laughs> complex with some really <laughs> awesome studios where Ken gets to play every day. That's right. Uh, that's how that works. But yeah, man, you and I both. I'm glad I mean, to have you on this side of the desk, man. Uh, I mean, listen, I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so proud of you, man. I mean, you've come in. I mean, talk about changing worlds and just jumping into live broadcasting and tape <laughs> We're broadcasting. We're figuring it out live, man. And you're doing such good. You're helping so many people. You know, I mean, I've been. I've been watching it, you know, this whole Ramsey personality thing and this whole content development thing and helping people. It's really unique. And it's unique because of the content, because of the audience, because of the person who's kind of driving it. And it's been really fun to watch you come in. And, man, there are so many hurting people. And it's just unbelievable how you're just loving on people and helping people, man. So it's it's been fun to watch. And, uh, you know, we're very different people but we share a lot of the same values. Yeah, that's and, what I love, dude. And we love people. Yeah, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's really cool to be here, man. This is fun. So what I like to do on the show when we have interviews is get behind the guy. Okay. Right? Oh, boy. And there's something cool going on. So before we get in there, I want you to to tell everybody. And hey, here's the thing. For the listeners here, we, we write books. We... Um, put out content we put out shows we put out a lot of books here and here at Ramsey Solution and they sold millions and millions of books right? oh yeah Dave has Dave has yeah Rachel has Christy Wright has um but there's a lot of buzz on your new project yeah well we're so tell me about, about what in the world you're doing with this yep. brand new book that's coming out well the title pretty much describes it from paycheck to purpose and the sentiment is simply this there is this dominant worldview that views work as this thing we do to live, right? right? If we enjoy it for a little bit, that's gravy. Um, but we work to live, basically to take care of the basics. If there's a little leftover for some memories on vacation, things of like that, then that's great. And I just don't believe that's the case, and neither does Ramsey Solutions. And we're really coming at it from a very different worldview. We're flipping it, and we basically believe that you live to work. Now, that just freaked a lot of people out, so I'm going to explain that because it's not exactly like it sounds. Okay. If I said you were created to work, it would feel yuck. But if I said you were created to contribute, I think you'd start to go, okay. I'm in. Right. I'm in. So basically what I believe is is that we could just break down the human race when it comes to purpose to two major areas, relational purpose and professional purpose. I say relational purpose first on purpose. Because we are created to connect, right? first and foremost. So you and I have purpose in our relationships, in our particular relationship roles. Husband, father, son, friend, teammate, on and on and on and on. But we also have professional purpose. And what I mean by that is, I think it's really obvious that we all long to make a difference in the world. And so we do that in our relationships, so relational purpose and professional. And so I'm helping people realize, hey, there's more to work. Then the nine to five, the four hundred one k. There is real purpose. Whether you're a plumber, a professor, it doesn't matter. If you're a missionary, or you are a nuclear physicist, all work can be, and should be, honorable. That's the whole point. That's everything I believe. This is what the whole show is about. So the idea is that this isn't working for worth. That's all about us. It's about working to contribute. That's about everybody else. So when a teacher shows up, and whether she has a bad day or not, but she does a really good job, she may feel like she had a really crappy day, but she made the difference in the life of a second grader in ways that she may never know. There's purpose in our work. It's about showing up to give yourself away. So I say this very simply. You were created to fill a unique role in your work. You were needed. That means you're valuable. And that means you must do it. Somebody needs you to show up. And be the best version of you to use the talents that God gave you to actually do work that creates a result that makes other people's lives better. 
So I'm sitting there either. I got laid off after the crazy last few years, and yeah. I've just cobbled together 17 different gigs trying to make it work. I'm just sitting at home collecting a check. I am. You and I just hosted a, the other, another radio show a little while ago together. Um, a martyr. Um, I'm just going to sit here in this dead end job because it's in the town that I'm comfortable in, or that my wife is comfortable in, or my husband is comfortable. Whatever. What do you? What you just said is profound, and I want all the listeners to get that. And I have a list of questions we're going to talk about, but we're already off list, and we're at question number one. Yeah, that's what the book is about. That, well, <laughs> yeah, you, that's it. How do you find that work? How do you find it? And what do you do? do? You, and then, well, then how do you get there? How that's what the there? book is about. But so I, I bet I've applied to a thousand jobs in my life. I got addicted to applying for jobs because I thought that the cure to my lack of feeling like I was contributing to anything, like I was making the money that I felt I was entitled to, which is a whole other nonsense. I got it's for another show. But I kept thinking that my my completion was somewhere out in another job. And what you just said was all work is honorable. It's going to look, it's going to, it's going to be me. What am I going to bring to this thing? And I'm going to stop beating up on the external and I got to deal with the internal. Yeah. It's not about your salary. It's about the significant contribution you make. You know, whether you're making a median salary in the United States for a teacher, $60,000, but I dare you to find more, more valuable, significant people in the workforce than teachers who craft young people you know, and, and so the idea here is, is that when you begin to see that there's a reason why at some point in your life, no matter where you're from, what politics you ascribe to, what your spiritual experience is, what country you live in, at some point everybody lays awake at night and says, why am I here? Well, where's that coming from? Like nobody has to teach a kid to say no. Nobody has to teach a kid to ask a million questions yeah. and nobody ever teaches you, Hey, at some point, at three in the morning when you're awake, ask yourself, why am I here? <laughs> or what should I do in my life? Am yeah. I right? Yeah. So that to me is a soul craving, a soul craving to be significant. Now you are significant. You're significant because you're a human being and you were created in the eyes of God. So you're significant, but there's a soul craving to be significant for somebody else. That's what I'm saying. And I think a way to do that is through your work. It's not all about your work. That's why I said it's relational purpose and professional purpose. You're a student of history. So how do yeah. we get here to where my life is all about me? Because what you're saying is right. It, it's when I, when I work with people who are struggling with mental health, if I can get them to just shift the perspective that your life's about service. And if somebody can get there, it's game, game changer. All, that's it. That's right. That's right. Exactly. When right. I can get a husband and a wife to have a competition to see who can serve each other the most. Yeah. You talk the entire family system changes. Right? Oh yeah, what happened? Where did we go sideways? Because we th this is wired into us. You see primates picking bugs off each other in the you know in the in the wild. It, I, where did we? And I, I'll just say the United States. Where do we get sideways and say nope? This is about me. I can solve me. Yeah, I want to. I want to say that I don't think this is an American problem. But we we grow up as Americans and we hear rugged individualism. So the roots of of the rugged individualism statement yeah. is the answer to this question. Okay. So I don't think it's an American thing. I think it is a, I think it is a prosperity thing. I mean, uh, when you talk about countries that are that are that are prosperous, so yet third world countries. I've been privileged to be in the poorest parts of Haiti. I've been privileged to spend time in the jungle of Africa where there's no electricity. Yeah. You don't see this kind of stuff over there. Mm. You just don't. And so what has happened is over time in history, there's the natural human inclination to progress and to make progress. So it's okay to want to accomplish. All right. Yeah. Well, when, when we saw commerce begin to modernize, and this is a, I'm trying not to give a long-winded answer. No, but that's what I'm asking you. I know you're a history guy. Well, the historical context is you go from this colonial era to now we go to more of a modern commerce era. So as money and commerce became more about stuff as opposed to livelihood. So, for instance— We were um, solving for lunch, and now we're solving for yeah. which couch do we want? So I know Kelly's back there. She's my fellow history nerd. Uh, I grew up on Little House on the Prairie. So to illustrate what I'm saying, there was a point in American history, I can't speak to the world history, but in American history, there was a point where where work was about eggs. Yeah, food. And, and you didn't get 
dollars and cents as much. Commerce was new. Okay, you just look at the country of America. So we're talking 1776 is when they go, we're independent, but there was no commerce. There wasn't this money system. So I don't want to completely nerd out, but over time, when we begin to see modernization of commerce and I can get more stuff, whereas before it was all about livelihood and the basics. Now it became about stuff. Well, you stick the opportunity for humans to progress and it's stuff that makes my life more convenient, my life more luxurious. There's where it all comes from. So then now work became less about the craft and it became about accumulation. Getting more stuff. Yeah, because the the, the silversmith and the blacksmith, like they they did the craft not because it was passion. Right, right. It was we gotta live. And if I go do this many horseshoes, I'm gonna get chickens and eggs. Gotcha. Well then when commerce comes in, it's just the natural human I hate to say it, but it is the human condition. When you introduce commerce, so then work slowly becomes about accumulation of money. We still have the basic needs that the blacksmith and the little house and the prairie people had, but now it's like, well, the more of this money I get, I can do more than just provide. So work became over time a utilitarian function to live first, then to live better, to live really, really good. Yeah. And we got twisted on it. So it, it all became that. Now, the last piece on this. Then, then the uh, and because of Ramsey Solutions, people are going to think I'm up to this, but this is the truth. In the 50s, the Pell Grant came out. This is post-World War II. So the Pell Grant comes out, and higher education is starting to become a thing. They made it accessible for people, and the federal government went, hmm. We didn't have anything of, to do with all those veterans coming home. Nothing to do. Let's send them back and train them. Right? So then the Pell Grant became popular, and the federal government went, hmm, we can actually make money off of this. Mm. And here comes Sally Mae. Here comes the federal student loan program. So now it became a marketing message. Hey, you really want to be successful? You want a different life for your kids than you had on the assembly line, Fred? Maud, send your kid to college. And it became a marketing message that the only way to success, real success, monetary stuff success, is through higher education. That was the fuel already on top of the fire. That's my take. I was coaching somebody the other day. and They made a statement said, hey, I'm struggling with parenting. This is a private call. Struggling with my kid. And they made a statement. By the way, I've known since this that since my kid was little, they'll have a job with the name on their shirt. So there's no illusions here. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's okay. And the parent was like, yeah, I know it's okay. It's great. I'm excited for it. It's something they're passionate about, whatever. But just the idea that we've got to delineate. Yeah, that there's some sort of, mm-hmm. hey, just so you know, we're not dealing with full firepower here. And I want to say, man, the smartest guy I've ever met in my life is <laughs> Gus yeah. Menendez, who well, can fix any car on planet Earth. A right? couple of things on that. Number one, um, that's okay yeah. if that's true. We don't know if that's true for that father to assume that. And that's what he's doing is he's falling into the class system. Mm-hmm. It's a class system. And it's based on economics. And that's where all of this became a thing to where work was about a rat race and it became about status, not significance. And I'm preaching significance. Gotcha. And again, let me be clear. Yeah. Because you've asked me this before. When I say significance, I don't mean proving that you are significant. Of course, of course. I'm saying making a significant contribution in the sense that you were born with talent. Yeah. You were born with things that fire your soul up, stuff that fires you up, makes me want to fall asleep. Vice versa, <laughs> right? Right. right. We have a unique contribution to make, and work's got to be about more than income. It's got to be about impact as well. That's what I'm saying. Therein lies the title of the book, From Paycheck to Purpose. Do we need a paycheck? Yes. Yes. We need income. But I think people want more than income. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to show them seven stages in the book where we unpack a very clear path for how we, A, figure out what is what are all the different types of work yeah. that are very significant to me. And because it's significant to me, it'll be significant to others. What is that role, that that dream job, or multiple dream jobs, by the way? And then how do we get there? So anyway, uh, it comes from a deep longing that I just know that this whole nine-to-five race and this whole I need more stuff, work has been corrupted. I was going to say, won't you look at the diseases of despair? You look at the we're paying a, we're paying a cost. Big time. I'm glad to see somebody get into the into the part of work somebody's got to deal with it and i think now i've got we got a generation of young people who's putting their entire 
identity in identity in work. It's true, right? but I will tell you, we see that with millennials, but I really am encouraged by what I'm seeing out of Gen Z. Yeah, they're saying I'm out, man. Well, they're creating awesome. a relationship because they're the digital, they're the kids that grew up with a phone their whole life. They don't even know what it's like to not have a smartphone in their pudgy little hands. But they're sick of it. They are. Sick of it. They're I sick of it. it. I love it. And by the way, that's the whole human race. We long for relationships. All right, hey, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on Dr. John Deloney's show. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Winter is finally leaving the premises. There's more light. There's more beauty. The flowers and the birds are out. And sometimes when we're surrounded by things that everyone else says we should be so happy for, and it's all so wonderful, and yet we look in the mirror, we don't feel it. And we know that we should be feeling full of energy and excitement. And we should be getting it all done, getting all our work done, connecting deeply in our relationships, dreaming about the future. Our social battery should be full, but maybe it's not. Maybe things still feel heavy, like a long winter hangover. I'm hearing from people all over the world that people are facing and experiencing so many challenges and everyone's social battery is pretty low. And of course, it's easy to get on your little phone and just scroll and scroll and pick up a bunch of influencer hacks, but maybe you don't need another hack. Maybe you need to talk to someone, especially someone who's trained to listen, trained to walk with you and help you build self-awareness and create an action plan for what you can do next so that you can recharge your social battery to a full charge. If you are stuck, it might be time to sit with a good friend or a mentor that you trust, or it might be time to try therapy. And I've had seasons in my life where talking to a therapist has made all the difference and it might make a difference for you. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited for your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time and they don't charge you anything extra. Visit betterhelp.com slash Deloney today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Deloney. All right, Ken. So we got your pitch out of the way. Tell us about <laughs> Ken. How many brothers and sisters you got? Where are you from? Mom yeah. and dad? Tell us about you. Yeah. Uh, one brother. Okay. Jamie is three and a half years younger than me. So it's just the two boys. Y'all friends? We are. Yeah. Closer now than we were as kids. Simply because I was three and a half years older, but four grades the way that he fell, and so it was fourth grade. So imagine, like, so you're never in the same school. Yeah, like, so like he's a, he's an eighth grader when I'm a senior, yeah. you know. And so there's just that's a hundred years. Yeah, it really is. So a lot of separation, but no, no, no animosity. But as we've gotten older now, very close. That's similar to me, and my brother. Yeah, mom and dad, the real life Ken and Barbara, really? Ken and Barbie. Yeah. yeah, Ken and Barbara Coleman, high school sweetheart. Oh, that's the real name. Real the names. real name, Ken and Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, yeah. If you see my dad, he's like five six. He's not anything like, resembling the Ken doll, nor am I, uh, as everybody now knows. So, uh, pastor's kid, uh, never lived a day when my dad wasn't a pastor. Started a church straight out of Bible college. Uh, he did. Yeah, he drives from Chattanooga, Tennessee, with my mom in a '72 Volkswagen Bug, and they started church with six families in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a town of 5,000 people, and it was the county seat. So I was actually My high school born, had 4,000 kids in it. Yeah, yeah. And I was wow. born in a really small town in West Virginia. We moved from that small town uh, when I was 12 to the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. So it was like going from literally Mayberry mm -hmm. to what I thought was a metropolis, which was, a, was about 600,000 people in that area. So it was a real dramatic that's change. That's a big city, 12. yeah. It was a big city for sure. Huh. Uh, and so that's kind of the, I'm giving you the quick childhood, but I mean, you know, great family. Um, so the, the, we all know the, the jokes about preacher's kids. Yeah. Was that you? No. If I know what joke you're telling. Well, so here's my hypothesis. Tell me if I'm right. I think there are preacher's kids. I don't get myself in trouble here. I think there are preacher's kids who do one of two things. If they've got, I don't want to do that. We don't even go there. Yeah, I don't mind. I'm not the black. No, sheep. it's not that. I'm saying there's when parents, when people see have their parents are in some sort of you know helping profession, and kids see a consistency, they see, oh, my dad and my mom are who they say they are every day of the week, 
they don't just put on a show on this yeah. day of the week. And I guess this is for teachers and cops, kids, and ministers, kids, whatever. It's when they see a different parent performing over here, over here, there's that cognitive dissonance in the kids and there ends up being some sort of, something doesn't feel right. Um, and then, so I know folks who have been pastors or teachers or cops or whatever you want to say, and man, they've got, they are consistent. They are, and their kids bear that out. And then there's those that struggle. Right? Yeah. It's my story in that I, I, I not lost a love of the church or yeah. ministry. I don't have a bitter taste in my mouth. My mom and dad weren't perfect, but Certainly, that's not my experience. I, I was very involved, yeah. even up into college. I'd come back and mm-hmm. help out in a very small church, by the yeah, way, yeah, yeah. small church. And um, But your dad was who he said he was, huh? Yeah. That's awesome. Legit. Mm-hmm. Sold out. So where did you come up with this idea that you wanted to help other people? You and I have talked about this offline, just sitting at the desk. Losing your job is one of the most psychologically devastating events a person can go through. Yeah, I shared this data with you. Studies show... When a business says, that when we you're don't of, want you. Yeah, when you're out of work up to six months, they say that the trauma, the emotional trauma on a human being is the same as losing a loved one. Right. It's I was heavy. struck by that. Yeah. You so, weren't as surprised, but it's a pretty big deal. So who 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 put that where's that where does that burr in your heart come from? Like, I want to get in the middle of that type of trauma yeah. and pain. Yeah, well... Um, and help people. Where it comes from, it wasn't that developed, obviously, but my father in ministry, my mom and dad loved people. They loved people. That's small church ministry. There wasn't any money in it. Yeah. They struggled. They loved people. So I always saw a model of loving on people spiritually. My dad loved history. And you know, when you've got a parent, whether it be a mother, father who's into something big time, oh yeah. I think a kid goes one of two ways. You either totally reject it, like what? Or you totally just eat it up. And I don't know if I could prove that out. No, but, it's, it's, I, but I think it's right. I just fell in love with history. Now, one of the things I now know later on is my parents couldn't afford to take us to Disney World. So we went to battlefields. <laughs> so I'm like climbing up on redoubts. And the fact that I even know what a redoubt is makes me so pathetic. But it's where they would build the mounds. To fire their guns, and so they're still there. My dad would go, hey, that's where the Revolutionary War redoubt was, but then uh, back then, and then the Civil War used it. He's, and I'm like, okay, this is awesome. And I'm running around in a field. Right. But I think it's a big-time deal because my dad said a major battle happened here. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I knew what the Battle of Bull Run was before I was 10. Nobody knows what that is. And the fact that we live in an ecosystem that would suggest, oh, you know what you really should have been learning about? Dancing mice. Right, Dancing right, mice. right, right. Right. I don't know about and a that. giant I don't even know if he's a dog. What is goofy? But yeah. like, right like that's that's the yeah. way we tell yeah. our stories. So bottom line is this history thing starts to weigh in on things. So I've got parents who are sold out to loving on people in a spiritual context. Yeah. I've got this unbelievable appreciation for history. So all I ever read about and hear about are men and women who do great things. Right. That starts to weigh in on you. You go, hmm, my mom and dad love on people. They're making a difference in people's lives. These men and women that I read about are awesome because they did things that changed people's lives, right? Whether it be political or science anything, or Thomas yeah. Edison or anything. All those accomplishments had human beings on the other end of the accomplishments. Okay. Serving other people. Sure. Einstein. Yeah. Edison. Yeah. Electricity. Alexander Graham Bell. I mean, we, we, we forget that all these great accomplishments have people on the other end of them right. that, that really benefit from talent. That's the whole point. So I think that was a big part of it. And then my dad was very political. So the last piece was public service, but it was in the context of politics. I won't go into politics, but you take all three of those elements, ministry, history, and politics. It, I don't know that it could have it, – it just was like a giant rushing river that led me to serving people. Mm. But I thought it was going to be politics. I thought it was going to be public service, making policy, influencing policy that would make people's lives better. Gotcha. And then there was a shift when in, in my – late twenties and, and it became, you know, many years later broadcasting, but I didn't know it. I just knew that I wanted to make people's lives better, but I couldn't articulate that. I don't know many 20 year olds that can. Oh no, I'm, I'm even giving you like 16. I just knew, man, I'm, I'm supposed to go, I'm supposed to go do public service. I, I felt I was called into politics at 16, but I didn't know what it was going to look like. Of course. I mean, you're 16. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be in a metal band and a pro baseball player at 16. 
you know, you would have been the real life, like, no, not real life. He is a real person. You would have been like a Bo Jackson if you pulled that off. Bo Jackson was like the first person to be amazing and, and be a star in two major pro leagues. Yeah. If you would have pulled off rock star and baseball player. It would been incredible. I still wouldn't have been Bo Jackson. Doesn't matter. If you were a major leaguer and you did concerts Sold on the re- weekend. Oh, incredible. Neither of those worked out. Thanks for kicking me while I'm down, though. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, so getting back to contribution, I'm thinking about our, our families. So you and I, at the end of the day, I don't want to, to minimize what we do, but one of the things we do is we give advice for a living. Yeah. And, man, there's sometimes the tools that make us successful at our jobs, and I've worked with doctors and lawyers and preachers the tools that make you successful at your job often melt the people in our houses right our relationships at home and so how do you balance being the guy that america calls when they're struggling with something and then the guy at home how do you shift and navigate hey all these people are asking for my advice in your 14-year-old is just like, hey, how about you shut up, old man, and yeah. let me, you know what I mean? How do you, uh, do how do you balance you that? Well, I haven't. I haven't done a good job of it, and you know that. What does that um, mean? Oh, I just, I'm recently awakening to the fact that I've been parenting my kids as a coach because I love sports. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I played sports my whole life. I always matriculated to the coach who was kind of the tough love. Yeah, like, me I knew too. My, I knew my coach loved me, yeah. but he'd bust my butt, and he was tough, and I responded well to people who pushed me. Yeah. Um. And then I'm learning about fear of the fear of a father. What's that mean? Well, it's the fear of the mother too. But for me, what it means is, is that you have this dream of being a parent, which I did. And our journey was very different and all over the place, as you know, and you finally become a parent and you just want to invest and pour into these kids that you love so much. You can't even possibly articulate. And you go along and then they don't turn out maybe the way you expect it, or they don't do things you expected. And it's just the normal rhythm. We're not talking about major stuff here. And you begin to get controlling because you're like, oh, I'm afraid that they may not do this. I'm afraid that they don't. And and then, then you combine that with this, I can coach, I can, I can show you, I can teach you, I can convince you, I can influence you to do what I know is best for you. Yeah. And I'm passionate about it. <laughs> yeah. I got bigger muscles than you. Like I'm, I can make you do this. And so what happens is it, I do believe it, it started in the right place from the heart. Yep. But then comes out of the heart, starts making, <laughs> yeah. this is, this is really not uh science, but I'm going to describe it this way. It comes from the heart somewhere. It gets up here into the brain before it comes out my mouth and it turns into coaching and controlling. And it's, mm. and, and it's been hard because you can't parent with platitudes it's really easy for me to do that. Yeah, I'm just being really wrong. No, I, I'm. I, and what I'm, I'm. I've had to stop being a coach, and I got to start being a dad. And it's still a work in progress. I'm making progress with my kids, but I had to stop coaching them, and I had to just be. How's that feel? I, you know I, I mean? I'm a hundred percent, and. But you're a counselor. Do you find that you naturally move to the counselor role? So they. Beat, I wish I did. They beat that out of you in grad school. Okay, good. You cannot treat your. They'll tell you it's unethical, and we will hope to find out, and that's we'll take nice. your license from you. Well, that's good to know. If you counsel yeah. your friends or your family, you can't have them as clients. That's yeah. not your job. Yeah. It's not your job to counsel your wife or your kids. But I default to coach, and what I realized was it was less of a moral failure and more I, – I thought I had way more tools. And I thought that <laughs> I've, I've yeah. come to liking baseball and fishing and hunting – because those are the three greatest things. And anyone who with a rational brain, oh, and old punk bands too, anyone with a brain will understand that those are the four things you should spend your time and energy on. And if someone I'm I love... I'm not there yet. Well, I'm... <laughs> right? But if I'm my kid, I think, oh, my son is super into 90s country, and I don't have a psychology for this. Yeah. And That's I, right. I thought, you know what? I just haven't explained it Right. I went and bought CDs. We would take road trips where I would, I found myself trying to convince a nine-year-old that he yeah. should be liking this over this. 
And it's exactly. Insane. That's that's what I was describing is that they may just have, they don't react the way to me that I wanted them to react to me. And all of a sudden I'm projecting my needs onto them. Well, and it turns behaviors. into like, well, have you heard the, or heard yeah. the, 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 so it goes, but it goes uh, back to. I didn't know to, we were going to talk about parenting, but, uh, but you know, it's hard. That's this show, man. It's really hard. It's the hardest thing I'll ever do. I disagree. I'm, I'm willing to say that. No, it's, it'll be harder things. So how, I, I'm interested. I'm, I'm not convinced of that, but that's okay. How do you, you find yourself coaching? My kids? Are we talking about find yourself? Kids? Yeah. Oh, geez, we're still there. What is what is your backpedal mechanism? How do you when you catch yourself? Oh, um, Here, I'll give you an example. That's good. Yeah. The other day, I um, my son was. <laughs> I, you and I were talking about this. I he said, "Hey, Dad, can I take some of your fancy lures to the creek? Me and his buddies, we're going to catch some fish." I said, "Dude, there's no chance you're going to catch any fish there. None." Zero. It's two feet of water, and he's like, uh, "Okay, but can, we're gonna go fishing. Can yep. I? Can I borrow these?" And then I realized my data isn't gonna solve this problem. Yeah. I've been fishing a thousand. I've been fishing five thousand times. You will not catch fish in there with that lure. Hey, but dad, can I? You know what? Yes, great. And if you lose them, you're paying for them. Yeah. And then I get a text on my phone a few hours later from my wife. Hank wanted me to let you know that you were wrong, Hank. and they caught a fish. Way <laughs> to was, go, Hank! And it made me it made me happy. Yeah. I was excited, but I thought when my default setting was, "Oh, that's so awesome," I thought, "Oh, that's a lot of therapy," because I would have been pissed. Like those yeah. guys caught a fish, and yeah. then I would have been mad at myself, and then I would have been ashamed, and then I would have been yep. grumpy and yep. a spiral and whatever. Yeah. So my back pedal is becoming. I wish I could say I do it all the time, but it's getting to the point where now I'm empathizing instead of trying to equip. Ah, uh, okay. You know, that's the coach. You want to so you're meeting with the heart, not with more info. Yeah. It's well, I'm empathizing two ways. Number one, I first go, did I do something like that when I was that age? Probably. Probably. Yeah. Sometimes worse. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is is that uh, I want them to feel that while I'm not thrilled with their actions. I'm crazy about that. Yeah. I um you talk about the Bible on this show? Yeah. You can talk about whatever you want to on this there's show. A, there's a well-known, whether you've ever been in church or not, if you've ever heard the parable of the prodigal son, look it up. And I've been in church my whole life as we were talking about. And recently, I saw something in that parable that I've never seen before. So when the prodigal comes back from in a, in a place of shame, he's coming back. He's lost everything. He's filthy. He's nasty. He's been eating with the pigs. And he comes back, and the way the parable is told, that Jesus tells it, is the father sees the son coming from afar off. And he's excited and he welcomes him, right? And and I kind of always just kind of glossed over the rest of the story because I've always like, that's awesome. The father was glad his son was back. But nowhere in the parable does he say, come here, give me a hug. I told you so. I knew this was going to happen, but I'm glad you're safe. There was none of that. In fact, it's the next action. So the father does two things. One, he goes to the road to meet his son and he sticks his arms out and welcomes the son. You're welcome. But it's the next step that I've never seen before. He goes, go prepare the finest dinner. We're throwing a party. That's next level. It's not. Unconditional love is your welcome back. I don't even know what you call that. We're celebrating that you're alive and that you're back. We're throwing a party. You burned my money. You embarrassed me in the community. You split my family up, and I'm so glad you're Let's home. Let's go have chips and queso. So glad you're home. Yeah, like, so I was just telling my wife that this is, I've not shared this with anybody. I was just like, that's the part that's so hard huh. about parenting. The love is there, yeah. but I never saw the other part, which is, I'm going to show you crazy. Reckless. Crazy, love. reckless grace and redemption. Yeah. I think it's redemption. I think it's one thing if the father hugs the dude and goes, hey, let's go get you a shower. They threw a party. That kid goes from shame to what is going on here? I don't know, dude. I'm running with that. No, here's what I, I love. Don't know if here's that love. stands up theologically, but it, that's the way. I well, read here's it. what I love about it is it's the person who was spurned who went first. Yeah, the person in power went first, and yeah. often it wasn't about him. He wasn't worried about what everybody thought. There's where I struggle. 
I get so hung up in my kids' behavior, whatever, like, what are people going to think about me? It's like, would you stop it? It's not about you, you bonehead. It's about them. <laughs> and I think the father was going, I don't care what anybody thinks. Even with his other son in the back going, hey, what about me? Yeah, Uncle Larry's going, I wouldn't have done that. You know Uncle Larry was in the back of the, <laughs> going, I don't know about this. If that had been my boy, I'd have kicked his butt. Yeah, yeah. Don't you think? Of course. And, yeah, and we solved it with connection. Right, I'm going to draw you nearer than you could even imagine. Right, that's so. I'm, that's trying to be my backpedal. Mm. So you're you're leaning into. Yeah, as a dad, you go first, man. And it's isn't it crazy? I do that too, Ken. Now that I'm thinking about it, sometimes I look at my 11 year old and think, "Well, you did this, so when you're ready to take the first step, it's like, what an idiot." Caught myself recently. He's 11. Caught myself recently in a, just a normal, it wasn't a big thing. This is not a major fire. Yeah. It was just normal parent stuff, normal dis- disobedience kind of stuff or just bad decision. And I caught myself. I literally said it, but I couldn't get the words back. And it was, I'm sorry I failed you. Yeah. Yeah. I said that. My kid was like, literally like, what woke me up was my kid was like, no, you didn't. My kid. <laughs> We're talking about <laughs> teens that are like, they don't even know, they have no sense. And he was like, uh, no, you didn't. It was me. <gasps> and that's the issue there. Well, one of my, dude, I didn't know we were one going of my here. This things is unbelievable. Was talking to my, I need some tissue. When I got home and I told my son, I'm so excited. I was wrong. I, y'all are really impressed. Good job catching fish. Yeah. And he gave me a hug. Oh, yeah. But modeling for him. Hey, here's what it looks like to oh, say yeah. I was wrong. Uh, I will I tell you, some of the biggest breakthroughs for me uh, is watching my kids respond to me going, I totally blew it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Like, I, I don't even have a good excuse. I blew it here. Yeah. And I can't think of a greater gift other than food and water and treating our spouses with dignity. Yeah, it's that, a great point, by the way. This is good This is good for your marriage as it is for your parenting. I mean, this is the same kind of stuff here. So it's a good at workplace. When you go oh, in, yeah. I go into Dave and say, hey, man, I said this. I didn't, I didn't mean to say it this way. I'm sorry. Oh, and, dude. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had to literally walk into a coworker with a plate of steaming crow. <laughs> <laughs> Cut it up in front of them and go, I'm going to eat this in front of you. Yeah. I got to tell you. But it's liberating. Because here's the whole thing. Let's circle back to some stuff here. Yeah. For people that are watching here, because you're, you're talking to people that feel like they've failed yeah. beyond repair. That is such BS. There's no, you didn't fail. I Let mean, me you may have failed, you but you're not beyond redemption. Well, you, you failed. Yeah, you screwed up bad, but you're but not beyond you, redemption. If you learn to eat the crow and you learn to see redemption on the other side of eating crow, yeah. I'm telling you, the greatest lessons are when we're willing to just eat that dirty bird. That's when I can untether my ego from. I. It's not that I have to be perfect. It's the image of having to be perfect if i can unhook from that yeah. you're free forcing to confront your failure makes it hurt even more than you already thought like you know what i'm saying yeah. it's enough for you to go oh geez i just really screwed up and hurt somebody that's your own recognition but then when you got to go to them oh it's like it's like a screwdriver in an open wound <laughs> am i right yeah it hurts to, to man. own it to them but here's what happens to me as you know, it leads to healing. It's freedom, yeah. But but it's also like, I don't want to feel that much more. Yeah. So people assume, because you are a syndicated radio host, you've spoken in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I Lots of big so stage. impressive right now. Yeah. I just saw you with a with the former president the other day. Um, what do they t- assume? When's the time you've screwed up? Can you be more specific? Yeah, in, professionally. Because here's the thing: like, I I think there's a perception that oh, once you're there, wherever people imagine there is, that um, you you've got that skill down. Like once you're a mechanic and you learn how to put change a tire, you change a tire, right? You don't mess that up. Yeah, it depends on what kind of screw ups we're talking about. We're Have you had an about- awesome? Okay, let's do a live event. Have you had an awesome live event? Screw like, up. Whoopsie do. Yeah. Um, live event, whoopsie do. You've interviewed, yeah, hundreds. Of- um, nothing comes to mind, but I'll I'll tell you this: James and Kelly are over there. I mean, early on, like when Dave came up with this idea one day, that person I wasn't even an official personality, but they were going to host a radio show, and and so you know we was we had to do this and this all this pressure and it's this second largest show in the world. I mean, the chair felt like I was sitting in 
John Bunyan's Lazy Boy. Right. The first time we did it. So we go on. I don't know, James, it might have been four or five months in, and I had just started my fledgling podcast, and I just was live on the air one day rolling along, and I gave out my full phone number and said the Ken Coleman show. Not a big deal now that we look <laughs> back on it. A very understandable mistake because I had started a daily show at the time. But you would have – I dude, listen to me. I was mortified because this is the biggest show – I mean, this is – this is a massive show. This is a legend seat I'm sitting. I don't even belong in the room. Right. And I accidentally just said my phone number and my name, and there's new people coming in all the time, and I just felt like, well, that was one small thing, but it felt really huge. So that was a big uh-oh. Uh, the first time I did that, I was mortified. Yeah. James could tell you. I mean, I probably was eight shades of white, and he was well, very and, gracious. And, and some people make mistakes at work. And oh, 30, I, 30 people I, find out. You, you make that mistake in Millions yeah. heard it, right? But but I'll tell you this, I've I am such a control freak and I didn't realize I was a control freak until recently because I'm not a detail guy. Okay. I'm not organized and I'm not detailed. Okay. Anybody that knows So what me, are you what are you a control freak about? Perception. Image. Ah, okay. Image. Uh-huh. Image and perception. Control freak, man. Mm. Want everybody to like me, want everybody to think that I've got what it takes, that I belong, blah, 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 mm. blah. Okay. So so I was on my own for a long time, lone wolf. So, so when you're not bouncing into people, your every own day, show, yeah. Well, yeah. just well, yeah, yeah. My own show on my own in Atlanta. I didn't have yeah. a team. Gotcha. So I come to Ramsey, and you got. I think I joined the team when there was like 700 people or something, 800 people. So I had to start working with people, and that some of that stuff flared up, and I've I've unfortunately ripped people's heads off. Ah, uh, gotcha. Because I felt like they 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 either didn't respect or didn't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was all about respect. Yeah. You didn't respect. You, you can't even believe you'd say that or you'd ask that or you, just that kind of stuff. Just feeling I'm like. Ken freaking Coleman. Not from that standpoint of an arrogance thing, but a, what? Like, you don't think I know what I'm doing on this? It, you, uh, like, okay. that's what I mean. Like, it okay. wasn't an arrogance. It, it may have come it come across that way, but it was it's from a bad place of control. Gotcha. You, I can't believe you think this or that you would even ask that or whatever. Or I had a high standard. And there, I would hold people to standards that weren't realistic. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So some of that stuff that I've really blown it professionally, where I've just been super intense with coworkers, um, and that's tough because the irony of that is, the people pleaser, the unhealthy people pleaser, is what caused the flare up, <laughs> and then you flare up and whack somebody on the head. And you're not a, pleasing them. In a moment of not being healthy, then you feel even worse it about turns, that. It turns just spins that sucker. You, you're yeah, a professional. Yeah. You can <laughs> break that down better than I can. Well, it ends up in the toilet bowl, right? It just spins faster and faster so, and faster. So it is. Yeah, yeah. So until you get healthy on that yeah. and you realize that you're allowing stuff to trigger you, that has nothing to do with what these folks are doing. Nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's... I remember the first meeting I was here, so I'm, I'm hypersensitive about my parents and... You are? Oh my gosh! One of the first me, and that's that's childhood stuff back from when I was a kid. I think it's news to me as well. This is fascinating. But when we sat in the in the meeting, the very first one, we did a photo shoot, and they walk me in a room, and there's a giant oh. flat screen, and <laughs> there's thirty people, and they're like, "This is my favorite, Ken." I may have told you this. There's somebody walks up, and they're looking at a picture of me. It's like a five foot fo- picture of me, and they're scrolling through them, scrolling through them, and you hear people go, "No, no." Oh gosh, no, no! Yeah, I can get that. And I'm sitting there going, "What?" I know. But somebody says That's this. Me, everybody. Oh, this one's perfect. <laughs> Look how he's standing. Look at these clothes. Ah, this would be perfect if it weren't for his face. And I remember thinking, "Wow, guys, that's my. F- I can't change that part." And everybody laughed, and it was funny. But I had to get over it, man, because I was so sensitive about it. That that's very similar. The sensitivity for years, to how right? I'm perceived, the yeah. sensitivity to that and if that triggers that you know better. I mean, oh, I'm talking yeah, yeah, to the yeah, psychologist yeah. here. So some of that stuff having to learn how to uh process that and yeah. understand that that that's coming from someplace. Yeah. And that's what talk- I'm bringing it to them. Yeah, yeah. So when, when often when somebody calls into the show, they'll tell me, "Hey, there's a presenting issue." And one of the things I'm always looking for is threads. Like, how far does this thread go? Yeah. One of the most common questions I'll ask is, walk me through what home looked like when you were a kid. Yeah. So a quick thread, what's something you learned from your dad that has passed through Ken that you are so excited to pass along? Like, what's something you still carry with you? Something you carry with you. Well, I was talking to my dad this morning. Yeah. 
And so the easy answer to that question is he taught me the most valuable lesson that any human has ever taught me. Um, and it, uh, it has been with me since I was a seven year old soccer player. (laughs) Dang dude. So seven years, seven years old. So I'm a little guy now. Imagine me at seven. I look like I was four. (laughs) Did you have a humongous head and tiny little legs? Uh, nothing about me is humongous. I think everything was just a huge head. Everything, everything on me is like a running Q-tip. I'm just small guy, small guy. There it is. And so I'm showing up to play in a six to eight-year-old league or six, seven to ten, something. I don't know. I'm the smallest kid on the team. Okay. Now, this was back in the day. This is in the 80s. So everybody didn't get a trophy. Right. And there was no equal playing time. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> no, I'm I, not, I remember I'm not those days. To, I'm not trying to old school all of a sudden, folks. I'm just telling you, that was my reality. Come on, Kelly. Yeah, am I right? So if you're listening you to the show. You didn't get equal playing time in Little League. If you weren't good, you just you never played. <laughs> you sat over in the corner of the dugout looking through the chain link Eating big league chew, and there'd be one coach that'd go to the other coach and go, "Should we put him in?" And then and the you'd run up go, to right field. No, nope. one inning. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was the reality. Oh, I remember. So here I am, little Kenny Coleman. I look like I'm four. I'm seven. I want to play soccer. I really am pretty decent at it. But my coach, Fred Serball, never forget his name. No wound at all. Nothing there at all. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't play me. You're like that guy in Billy Madison. He doesn't play me, and I don't know if this is two or three. Games in the season. Fast forward. One day on the way home from the game, I'm in the back seat. My dad's driving, just the two of us. I'm crying. He notices I'm crying. It's the old conversation to the rearview mirror. Oh, yeah. Our eyes are meeting. I'm sobbing. What's wrong, bud? I croak through tears. Something along the lines of, I just want to play or I'm not playing. Something like that. And he looks at me and he says, hang in there. Your time will come. Hmm. Four words. Your time will come. Now, he then goes on to say, you're small. You'll eventually get a little bit bigger, a little bit faster. Coach will give you a chance, and you're going to play, and you will score goals. He prophesies, if you will, over me. Came true. Yeah. Two years later, I'm the oldest in the league. I make the travel select team. Yeah, I'm yeah. scoring lots of goals. Life is glorious. There you go. Cue the John Mellencamp. Glory yeah. days, right? <laughs> so that lesson stayed with me. In my 20s, when I was trying to get into politics and I got in, it stayed with me in my 30s, and I don't have time to unpack it because we got to go, I'm sure. But um, even as I sit here today on the precipice of 47, yeah. about to launch probably my most important massive book. Massive book, yeah. Uh, an assessment, other things, massive pressure, as Dave's given us a platform, and we're actually helping people. And I want to do more. I want to do it faster. Yep. Your time will come. And he taught me patience while persisting. Very difficult thing to do. And you, like, I'm trying to put myself in, well, that's the like, thing. in the driver's seat of that car. Yeah. I bet your dad's heart was ripped out. Like looking oh, yeah. at your son crying and yeah. thinking, I can't fix this. No, I got a seven-year-old back there whose world has been shattered. He, wants he to, just wants game. to play. Just wants to play, man. Yeah. And, 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 and for him to have those words, yeah. your time will come. Yeah. And, um, I'm gonna. I believe I'll write a parable-style book on that message one day. Can I tell you it's something? It's the most wild? important thing I've ever learned. My old man, my dad. Um, man, <laughs> very similar. Similar. Playing baseball, and I've always been a big kid, and yeah. so I had I, an opposite thing. But there, I had a rough season, and I was good out in the field, but I was really struggling at the plate. And he said something: "If you can hit the ball." find a place on the field for you yeah and i remember thinking man if i can put the time in because i wasn't practicing i was running around with my buddies yeah. but it was a statement of if 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 you can play yeah put you out there. that's it and it was a like i felt a sense of the ball's in your court yeah um like the the, the universe has smiled on you you're a big kid you want to put the work in you know you know and i've always had that hey i'm not i'm not getting this job i didn't get this promotion then I'm probably not ready for it. Right? I'm not there yet. And for all the dads out there, <laughs> for right, wrong, or indifferent, and those little, those little, those moments, he had no idea. Stay with you. He for had no years idea how profound that was until many years later. I told him, and he was in tears. And to be honest with you, there's nothing profound there. It's profound, but it's four words. Yeah. 
So speaking life into your kids, man. That's what I'm saying, man. Doesn't matter how it sounds, mom. Doesn't matter how it sounds, dad. Just, they absorb it. Just throw your heart out. All right, man. Hey, dude. Thanks for coming to hang out on my show. Dude, this is fun. You're awesome. Thank you. You're great. Um, So every show we end with some song lyrics. I'm going to do a first on this show. A second. I let McConaughey do it, and I'm going to let Ken Coleman do it. Well, well, what do we got? What am I doing? So I asked put you me before, up against McConaughey. I asked There's you before the show. No chance. I asked you before the show what your oh, yeah. song would be. Greatest song of all time. And for only the second time, I'm going to let you read these. Oh. You picked right. them. Give the... Why? The, who, why, and read a, uh, you know, the verse-verse and the chorus. Yeah. You asked, me, you asked me this question, and I immediately decided I'm going to go with the first thing that comes to my mind, and I'm so glad I did, and I thought about it later, and it's unquestionable. My favorite song of all time, Garth Brooks, The Dance. Go Garth, 90s country, man. Because he's Garth, first he's of all. Garth. Um, but the lyrics, so good, man. The Dance. I'm reading this. Looking back, it's all I can do not to sing it, but I know James will turn the mic off. But I please really sing want it. To sing please it. sing it, Ken. <laughs> McConaughey sang it. Did he? Did McConaughey? McConaughey sing he it? did sing the it. The bar has been set. The problem is, is Garth is so unique. Yeah. This song's so great. I'll dishonor the very thing. But anyway, looking back. But he's a poet. Let's let, let's let's do it. Looking back on the memory of the dance we shared beneath the stars above. For a moment, all the world was right. How could I have known that you'd ever say goodbye? And now, I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end, the way it all would go. And this is my favorite line. Our lives are better left a chance. I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the Dude, thanks for being here, man. It's choking me, man. Get me <laughs> out of here. Hey, Garth. thanks so much. Ken Coleman, go to KenColeman.com. You can listen to the Ken Coleman Show. You can follow him on the internets at Ken Coleman. Make sure you pick up his brand new book. Please. From Paycheck to Purpose. My kids need shoes. (laughs) Your kids' shoes are awesome. (laughs) And when we park next to each other in the parking lot, I feel it. But it's good, man. It's good. Hey, buy the book for yourself. Buy the book for your friends and family. Hey, thank you for joining us right here on the Dr. John Deloney Show.